So yeah, I think um, today we're going to do Hebrews 12, um, 12 to 17. I think we're going to take two more weeks in Hebrews 12. Um, I don't think I'm going to go chapter 13 verse by verse because it's very practical. It's all about like, you know, respect your leader or whatever and just uh, host the strangers and all this stuff. And I'm just not good preaching this stuff. It's, it's, I just don't feel like I, there's much I can say there. Just says host strangers, then go out and host strangers. That's pretty much simple. So um, in Hebrews 13, we might just take one or two weeks max. Uh, we're not going to stay there for long. I'm just going to highlight in Hebrews 13 what does this chapter say about Jesus. That's, that's the only thing I'm going to pick out of it. Uh, the rest of the practical tips on how you should live your Christian life, that's um, pretty self-explanatory, uh, and you, can, uh, you should figure that out in your own. You might not need me to repeat the same thing over and over again. But anyways, with that, we might have uh, three or four weeks left in Hebrews, and then we should be done. So yes, um, I love it, and I kind of sad at the same time, but God's word is so powerful. So let's today um, start Hebrews 12, 12 to 17. And here's what the author of Hebrews said. Um, Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees, make level path for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to, uh, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root um, grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau, who for, one, for a single meal sold his inheritance right as the oldest brother. For you know that later on, when he wished to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no opportunity for repentance, even though he had diligently sought the blessing with tears. Strong, strong words. Amen. Um, let's just highlight a little bit verse 12 to verse 14, and then we're going to uh, do a little bit of introduction starting verse 15. You guys remember like two weeks ago or so, we um, were talking about that previous passage in Hebrews. And anybody remembers what was it about? It was, a, it was about enduring uh, hardship as discipline. Remember that? And he gave them the analogy that uh, before that even that we're in a race and that you should endure that race and you run that race with endurance. Now that the author of Hebrews is still encouraging his readers to walk their Christian life with endurance um, and endure this hardship as, as a form of discipline and training ground from God, he starts giving them some practical tips here from verse 12 to verse 14. He starts by telling them, strengthen the feeble arms and weak knees. Uh, actually, that's a, we're going to see today that this passage has many quotes from the Old Testament. I, I failed to mention it here in the notes, but this is a quote from the book of Isaiah, actually, Isaiah chapter 53. It literally says that, strengthen the feeble arms and the weak knees. And it says also, make level the path for your feet. So the author of Hebrews is encouraging them to take care of the ones that seems to be um, failing under the persecution and the pressure that the church is facing. 
And when he told them, make a level path for your feet, he's taking them back to the whole race analogy. Remember when he started say, looking unto Jesus, let's endure the race. So it's the same idea here. He's saying, make sure that when you're going through that race, that if there's any blockage in the way, that you kick it to the side. So this way you can run that race with no hindrance. So that's the practical tips that he is uh, trying to give to them. And he said afterward, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy or pursue holiness <coughs> without which no one will see the Lord. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone. Remember, they're being persecuted by the people around them. Yet the author of Hebrews is telling them, in spite of the fact that they treat you rotten, you make sure that you treat them right. And you make sure that you live with them in peace as much as it possibly can be. Within the limit of being holy and try to follow the holiness of God. So if the people around you will pressure you not to be holy, not to obey the word of God, then that's your parameter. God needs to be obeyed more than people. Amen? Amen? So that's kind of the practical tips he's giving them. As you can see, I just read what he said because I'm not very good at preaching this stuff. That's why chapter 13 is going to be short. Now let's move to the theology of um, chapter, the chapter, verse 15 till the end of that chapter. The author of Hebrews here is starting his final and last warning to the Hebrews before he closed his epistle. You guys remember that he has been telling them so many warnings throughout the book. And we studied all of them. You guys remember that? This is number five, actually, in the book of Hebrews. Remember the first one was in chapter two, when he said, how can we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And then in chapter three, four, he's encouraging them to enter into the rest. And he's warning them from not drawing back, not falling away from uh, obtaining the promises of God. And then in chapter 6, when he said, it's impossible if you taste the heavenly gifts and, and know the Son of God that you will, and you turn back that you will ever be restored to redemption. Remember that in chapter 6? And then in chapter 10, when he said, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living God. That's forewarning. And now his fifth and last warning in the book of Hebrews, where he is using such strong words to warn his readers, the, the Hebrews, never to consider abandoning Christianity and abandoning Christ and go back to Judaism. So here, the warning starts from verse 15 all the way to verse 28. We're not going to finish it all at once. We're going to take it in two or three weeks, uh, probably, just because it's just uh, very important. In verse 15 to verse uh, 17, that's where we're going to uh, stop today. And he's warning them. He's uh, encouraging them never to abandon Christianity. And then he's using a practical example of someone in the Old Testament that he said, don't be like him. And that's Esau, the brother of Jacob. Amen. Remember in chapter 11? He used the, 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 the cloud of witnesses and he said, remember Moses, be like him. Remember Abraham, be like him. Remember Jacob, be like him. All these people walked by faith, so let's be like them. But now he's coming to a person in the Old Testament. He said, don't be like him. Amen. Because he's not an example, a godly example. So verse 15, he's giving them what appears to be a stern warning. He's saying this, See, so that no one falls short of the grace of God, and no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. 
And then in verse 16 to verse 17, he's drawing and elaborating on the example of Esau in the Old Testament. So let's start with verse 15. Verse 15 seems actually to be a quote or an allusion, but most likely a quote from Deuteronomy 29.18. And here is what the scripture says in Deuteronomy 29.18. God is warning his people and he said, so that there may not be among you a man or a woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God. So what kind of sin God is warning his people here in Deuteronomy 29? The sin of apostasy, to turn away from God once and for all. To go and serve the gods of these nations. And there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness uh, or wormwood. Amen? So verse 15 in, in Hebrews 12 is parallel or a quote from Deuteronomy 29, 18. And it works very similarly too. The first part of that verse seems to be parallel to the first part of Deuteronomy 29, 18. The first part here he says... See, here is what he's saying, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. That seems to, to be parallel of what God said in the Old Testament, the first part of verse 15. See that there may not be among you a man or a woman, a family or a tribe, whose heart turns away today from the Lord your God and go to serve other gods of other nations. And then the second part of Hebrews 12, 15 says this. See that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and define many seems to be a parallel to the second part of Deuteronomy 29, 18, when it says, and that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. Amen? In Hebrews 15 to 17, the author of Hebrews is telling them, see, this is how he starts verse 15, see. But the Greek is actually a little bit of a present tense. It actually says, see continually, watch continually, be always on the watch. And then he gives them these three things that they need to be seeing or watching continually for. Number one, which is that no one will fall short of the grace of God. That's the first part of verse 15. Number two, that no bitter root grows up among them. That's the second part of verse 15. And number three, that no one is apostate or irreligious, immoral or secular like Esau, which he elaborated on throughout verse 16 and verse 17. So let's look into these um, three things real quickly that the author of Hebrews saying, watch continually for this. The first thing is watch continually, be always on the watch that no one will fall short of the grace of God. The word grace, charis, which is used here in eight times in the book of Hebrews, it usually is used in one of two ways in the book of Hebrews. Number one, it talks about the grace of God that he has shown us when Jesus came down from heaven to die on the cross for the sake of our salvation. We see an example of that in, in Hebrews 2, 9, when he said that Jesus, he might by the grace of God, taste death on behalf of each one of us. Amen? So grace here in, in Hebrews sometimes is used to reference Jesus' death on the cross that we didn't even deserve to open the way for us to go to heaven. Or it can also be used as a reference to the provision that God gives us when we turn to him for help. We saw a couple of examples for that, particularly for uh, Hebrews 4.16. Remember that? When we can come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain 
find that we might find mercy and obtain grace to help in that time of need. So that's the context where the author of Hebrews usually use the word grace. Jesus is on the cross or God's helping us in our need. But he's saying this, make sure that you don't fall short of the grace of God. And the idea here of falling short of the grace is not just like you make a, you sin one time or you make a mistake one time. It's not that. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about willful disregard to the grace of God that he has shown us when Jesus died for our sins on the cross. It's an ultimate rejection and um, despise to the grace of God that he has given us in his salvation plan. Amen? It brings us to brings to memory what he said in, in Hebrews 10 39 we're not of those who draw back to destruction right that's the kind of falling that he's talking about that's the kind of warning that he's giving his people he said don't ultimately reject the grace of God don't fall short of the grace of God amen I remember this is parallel to the first part of the Deuteronomy 29, right? Which it means to ultimately reject God, to, fall, to go and follow other gods. So the author of Hebrews is warning them, don't reject God. Don't ultimately say no to God's love, mercy, and grace. And that seems to be the one thing that he constantly warned the Hebrews from throughout the book. Every single warning is about that, the, the sin of apostasy to ultimately reject Christ and leave him once and for all. And then he says this, the second thing that they need to be watching for, watch that no bitter root grows up among you. Yeah. Obviously, that's a metaphor, right? He's not talking about literal plant that he's saying, watch out for that plant, right? Mm -hmm. He's talking about a metaphor, and he's saying that this metaphor is growing up. That bitter root is not just still, but it is in the business of growing. It is manifesting itself among you in so many ways. So watch out that this will never happen. And the concept of that bitter root, uh, uh, evil plant that is just going and taking over everything, we have seen it before when he warned them in chapter 6, verse 7 to 8. And he said this, The earth which drinks the rain and that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessings from God. Look at this. Now the, the evil plant, the bitter root. But if bears thrones and priors, it is rejected and near to be being cursed, those end whose end is to be burned. So the analogy that there might be some strange, evil, wicked uh, root, better root that is growing that ultimately might lead to destruction he has used before. And that's what he has in mind here, that God will bless somebody and God will show grace and mercy and love to someone, yet they insist on rejecting what God has for them to the point that this root will defile not just them, but will defile many, yeah. right? That's what the idea of Deuteronomy 29 is, and that's what the author of Hebrews is warning his reader from. Don't say no to God, to his love, to his mercy and his grace and ultimately reject him and turn your back on him to the point of no return. Amen? Amen. Stern, stern warning. And he said that this can cause trouble, that growing root, bitter root can cause trouble. That trouble is the defilement that he just 
told us about. This trouble is that someone can be unclean before a holy and a righteous God. Both morally and ceremonially, that person will become unclean when they embrace apostasy and uh, insist on defying the living God once and for all. Amen? So good words, strong words from the author of Hebrews. And now, in order for him to emphasize, to drive that point home, he's using an analogy. He's using a, a story from the Old Testament so that he can emphasize to his readers that they should not turn their back to Jesus, on Jesus once and for all. And he's using the example of Esau that we read about in the book of Genesis chapter 25 and also in chapter, I think, 27. 27, 25 and 27. If you don't know the story, um, Esau, I, well, God called Abraham. Abraham's son was Isaac. And Isaac has two boys, right? He has Jacob and he has Esau. And they were twin. They came out at the same time. But Esau came just like, you know, a, a, a hair ahead, a second ahead. But Jacob is a crafty one. And the story goes that Esau was a hunter. He loves to hunt. But uh, but Jacob wasn't. He was just a mommy's boy. He wanted to stay home. And then one day, Esau went out. He, he was just hunting and having fun, coming home. And then he's super hungry. And uh, Jacob was waiting for him with a stew of lentil. Crafty. He's always been crafty. And then he's like, do you want some of that? And Esau's like, yeah, I am hungry. And, Esau, and Jacob said, well, sold me your birthright because he was born just ahead of him. And in the Old Testament, to be the firstborn, it's, it's not just, it, it has a lot of blessings. It's yeah. within the covenant of God, the firstborn receives so much blessing from God. That's the way the covenant of the Old Testament worked. So Jacob, knowing that, being crafty, he wanted to sell his brother a, a bowl of lentil, a bowl, a bowl of soup. So that, uh, but in return, he wanted the birthrights. And Esau said this, he said, you know what, I'm going to die anyway, you know, like I'm so hungry right now that I might even die of starvation, so let me sell it to you. And the Bible said that he despised, Esau despised his birthrights, and he sold it to Jacob for that bowl of rice. And then, long story short, um, now time is passing by, Isaac is about to die, and he wanted to bless his firstborn before he dies. So again, Jacob tricked his father, Esau, and he went out, he prepared the meal, and he put on himself some um, uh, animal skin because Esau was hairy and Jacob was, was smooth. So he put some animal skin on to his father, and he's like, Daddy, here's the food, eat and bless me. Uh, Jacob heard, uh, uh, Isaac heard Jacob, but he thought that this is the voice of Jacob and not the voice of Esau. So he's touching him and he's feeling his, the fur, the skin, fur, the, the animal skin on his body. And he said, well, this, the, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the, the touch, the skin is the skin of Esau. And he ended up blessing him because Jacob tricked him. Esau heard of it and he went back to his father. He's like, I need a blessing. And, and, and Isaac told him, your blessing is gone. Your brother has already took all your blessing and there is no more blessing is left here for you. So that's the story that the author of Hebrews here is referencing. And the story extends between Genesis 25 to Genesis 27. Now he's warning his readers and he's saying this, make sure that there is no one among you is uh, immoral or irreligious. The two wording here is, is per peculiar. The first word is make sure nobody is immoral. The word pornos in, 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 in Greek, from which we get the English word porn. So that's 
literally always talking about sexual immorality. That's the literal sense of the word. However, we don't have any indication from the Bible, from the Old Testament story, that Esau was sexually immoral or that he uh, was involved in any sexually immoral sins. The most likely meaning that the author of Hebrews is saying here is not talking about sexual immorality or uh, sin of adultery in a literal sense, but rather in a spiritual sense, that, that Esau was unfaithful to the covenant that God wanted to have with him. And he ultimately decided on rejecting that covenant from God. He was immoral in that sense, in that he was spiritually unfaithful to God. And that makes sense uh, as far as we know because we don't have documentation that Esau was sexually immoral. And that also makes sense in terms of what the author of Hebrews is trying to tell his reader. He's saying, remember, you are in a covenant with God that you made with him when you said that you're going to become a Christian. And if you're going to be unfaithful to that covenant, you're going to be immoral to that covenant, then you're going to be just like Esau, who was unfaithful to the covenant that he had with God by the fact, by the merits of his birthright. Amen? And he also said, don't be immoral, unfaithful like him, but also don't be irreligious. And the word here that he's using has many meanings. It can be irreligious, it can be secular, it can has many, many meanings. But the idea is, is it's a person they also interested in their own self-gratification. That's the whole point. That they're just so interested in who they are and what makes them happy rather than what is important. And that's what the author of Hebrews is telling them here. Make sure that you're not so consumed with self-gratification. And that was the sin of Esau. If you think about it, when, when, when Jacob offered him that bowl of, of soap, instead of Esau saying, oh, I cannot give you this. This is my birthright. I have so many blessings. I cannot just sell that to you for no price. And in spite of that, Esau being so consumed with immediate self-gratification, one meal, he's decided to despise the things of God and the covenant of God and the blessings that God has for him. Isn't that what happened? Right? And we read in Genesis 25, 32 this. This is why Jesus said, look, I'm about to die, which is not true. This guy is a hunter. He can hold on for another half an hour, right, to go home and eat. But he, he would just, the point is he despised God and the covenant and the blessings of God that he even decided that one meal is worth more than what God has for him. Right? And that's why he said, look, I'm about to die. He said, what good are the inheritance right to me? And he decided to give it away to his brother, Jacob. And that's what the author of Hebrews is warning them here. He said, don't be spiritually unfaithful like Esau. Don't be people so consumed with immediate self-gratification that you despise the holy things of God and the eternal things of God. Amen. Amen. And then he described Esau and said this. I like how William Lane translated that verse much better than uh, the best translation I've seen. It says this, who gave up his inheritance right as the older son rather than one dish of food. Yeah. He chose to give his birthright as an elder son rather than giving up one dish of food. This is what Esau did. 
He gave up rather than, he had a choice and he chose one versus the other. And by using this, the contrast here, gave up rather than, the author of Hebrews is kind of expressing his shock that Esau did the unthinkable, that he gave his good birthright for the sake of just one dish of food, right? And notice the word one. He did it like, it's like just one meal. The author of Hebrews, when he writes this in Greek, just expresses his ultimate shock that Esau did something that is so totally out of this world, totally unthinkable, that he will give up his birthrights for the sake of one dish of food. Amen. Amen? Now, Again, we talked about how the birthrights that Esau gave is, is just linked up to the blessing and the promises and the covenant of God that he has even given to, um, to Abraham and then went down to Isaac and now went down, supposed to Esau, but he rejected it, so went down to Jacob. And by doing that, by bringing up the example of Esau, that the, the author of Hebrews is telling his reader, you are doing the same thing. If you turn your back on Jesus, you might, do be, might as well be doing the exact same thing because you're giving up the covenant of God, the blessings of God, the eternal things that God has for yeah. you for the sake of something passing, something temporary, yeah. for, the sake of etern- for the sake of temporary gratification. So pretty much he's telling them what Esau did, you did. You might not be doing it for one dish of food, but you're still doing it anyways. Amen? So that analogy hits home with the readers, and it does hit home with us too in in so many ways, right? And then he says this, verse 17. Now, verse 17, the author of Hebrews is moving from Genesis 25 story to Genesis 27. Now, now Jacob deceived his, his father and he got the blessing and Esau heard about it. He's going inside. Our, Esau wanted in, in his blessing and Isaac told him it's already gone. So now the author of Hebrews is picking up from that story in Genesis 27. And then he says this. Let's read the first part of um, oops, verse 17. Verse 17, he says this. He says, um, for you know that later on. So the word you know, right? It means that they, the, the readers of Hebrew, are familiar with that story. And they know exactly how things went down, right? So it's saying, you know now, you know what happened. And he's taking them to Genesis 27, which obviously very familiar story to his readers. And he said, you know that later on, he wished to inherit the blessing. Yeah. Look, look at the words that the author of Hebrews is using. Later on, he wished to what? Inherit, right? The blessing. Let's go back to verse 15 and read what the author of Hebrews, 16, and read what the author of Hebrews is saying here. See that no one is sexually immoral or um, unfaithful or godless like Esau, who for for a single meal sold his what? Inheritance. And now that the author of Hebrews is saying he wished to what? to inherit the blessing. Do you see what the author of Hebrews is saying here? He's saying that the very things that Esau despised and rejected, his inheritance, he's now so desperately wishing that he will have it back. Right? But that time now, when he wanted that blessing so bad from God, when he wanted to inherit the rights of as the firstborn, what happened to them? him? The author of Hebrews says he was rejected. Passive tense. The obviously, he was rejected by God. 
God rejected him. God didn't want to give him the blessing that he despised and rejected before, right? Now, if you go back to the story in the book of Genesis, you don't see that God is even in the picture, right? You see that, he, that Jacob actually tricked Esau in the beginning to sell his rights, and then Jacob tricked his father to bless him before he blessed Esau. So you see that the whole thing is the trickery of Jacob and not God. But even though God is absent from the picture in the Old Testament, here the author of Hebrews is telling us that the reason Esau did not inherit his uh, did not receive his inheritance is not because Jacob tricked him, but because God has rejected him. You're with me? So God is in the ultimate control. When the moment Esau decided to sell his inheritance and despised what God has for him, at that very moment, God rejected him. And that was the very reason why he lost on his blessing from Esau, his father. It wasn't Jacob trickery. It was, but in the ultimate end of it, it was God who was rejecting Esau. Scary words, isn't it? Yes. Right? For he found no opportunity for repentance, even though he diligently sought the blessing with tears. He wanted it so bad, but too bad it was too late. Yeah. Right? He found no opportunity for repentance. It's not that, like, he couldn't find, the idea here, he couldn't find any, like, even small chance, any opportunity or chance or opening for him that he could ever repent the door was totally and fully shut he could not find any way and even though he desperately badly wanted this inheritance that he before despised and he sought after it with tears right let me just read to you what William Lane said here it's just so powerful um, he said this a reckless disregard this is what uh, Esau did. A reckless disregard for God and his gift is reprehensible because it entails a willful rejection of the divine vocation. This is the essence of apostasy. That's what the author of Hebrews is driving to his readers. By, by descriptive analogy, that of Esau, it entails um, there can be no opportunity for repentance for Christians who renounce the heavenly calling. In chapter 3, verse 1, he said that. Or who shows contempt for the blessing of the new covenant secured by Jesus, sacrificial death on the cross. There remains only the certainty of inescapable judgment and rejection of yes. God. Remember, remember in Hebrews 6, he said it's impossible for those who have tasted the heavenly gifts and, you know, like known God in some way or shape or form, and they reject the Son of God and crucify Him again and put Him again to public shame. It is impossible to bring them to repentance, right? And now he's given us a practical example of Esau who wanted to repent, but the door was totally shut for him and he could not get in. Now, let me close with you with that scary thought. Every single person in the scripture, every single person in the scripture who cried out to God and said, have mercy on me, God spared them. Every single person. Let me give you some examples. King David. King David. King David was a man after God's heart. Yet he saw a woman, he lusted after her, he 
committed adultery with her, and to cover up, he murdered her husband, who was a righteous man. I mean, a murderer and a killer. You can't get any worse than that, right? In Psalm 51, he cries out to God and he say, Have mercy on me, O God. What happened to him? He got disciplined a little bit as a child of God, but ultimately he was spared, right? God transferred his sin. God cry, listened to his cry and really had mercy on him. Bartimaeus, the, the blind man in Mark chapter 10 and, and Matthew chapter 9, he saw or he heard that Jesus was passing by and what did he cry? He said, have mercy on me, son of David. And what happened to him? He received the cavalry of sight, right? The Canaanite woman, she received some resistance from Jesus at some point, but then she cried out to him, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed. What happened to her? Yeah. Ultimately, she got spared, right? The tax collector, again, tax collectors in that time in Luke chapter 18, that's the worst sinners of that society. He cried out to God and he said, God, have mercy on me. What happened to him? Jesus said, this man went to his house justified, not the Pharisee. Every single person in the scripture who said, have mercy on me, God spared them, except one person. Only one person in the scripture that they can think of. Who cried, out, who cried out and said, have mercy on me. And he was not spared. You know who that is? But that exactly, but that's the point. <laughs> that's the point. In Luke 16, 24, the rich man who died, the rich man and Lazarus, he in hell lifted up his eyes and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to just cool my tongue. And what happened to him? God said, no way, it's done. It's over. There is no more mercy at this point. You follow me? Yeah. God's grace is not cheap grace. God's love is not cheap love. The fact that God is being patient doesn't mean that he's okay with sin. He's being patient because he doesn't want anybody to die and perish and go to hell. He's being patient because he loves everyone and he doesn't want anyone to go to that horrible place apart from Jesus. But the fact of the matter is, if we're going to reject and despise God's grace, there will be a time when, when we will cry out to God just like Esau and beg for his blessing, beg for his mercy. But at this point will be too Amen. late. Amen. Amen. And that is what the author of Hebrews is warning his readers from. He's saying, don't do it. Yes. Stick with Christ. Don't be unfaithful in the covenant of God. And don't be self-gratifying people. Just seek what is pleasing to you rather than what is eternal and what are the important things. Amen? I know this is not per se applicable to us because I don't think... If you're a boy, I, I believe that you're a son of God, you're not going to, a child of God, you're not going to die and go to hell. Um, but the fact of the matter is, we can all learn from that on some level, right? So, with that, let's all close our eyes and pray and seek the face of God and just ask God to help us not to be immoral or secular like Esau, even in a small scale. It doesn't have to be like... I'm going to, you know, renounce Christianity and I'm going to turn to become a Jehovah's Witness or something. I'm not saying that. Even in a small scale, small sins here and there. Just ask God to help us not to be people who despise the covenant of God and his mercy and his grace.